Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. I've been talking about Leon Tailoring for years, ever since I came to Indianapolis almost 20 years ago. You know why I talk about them? Because Leon Tailoring does a really good job of getting you quality clothes, whether it's something tailor-made, something ready-made, something custom-made. they got a career services division uh, for the young people in life who are looking for that first job. No matter what it is you're looking for, when it comes to clothing over at Leon Tailoring, they will look out for you and they will take care of you. So when you swing on by at 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis, tell them Abdul sent you and say hi to Larry, Norm, Kim, and Judy and pick yourself something up or better yet something for your loved one they'll appreciate it leon tailoring 809 north delaware downtown indianapolis do they have a safe place to lay their head do they have clean air and clean water and i would argue that a lot of those questions are still up in the air so in recent years uh, the price of rent utilities property taxes from hoosiers i've heard uh, just as recently as a couple weeks ago have soared across our state and in the nation. This year, a report from Prosperity Indiana showed that Hoosiers must now make $19 an hour to find a two bedroom here in the city of Indianapolis. And if you remember, just last year that was 16 bucks. So that's up $3 just from last year. During a time when rent has risen by the average of 12%, Hoosiers' wages have only seen a 7.5% boost. Now imagine if you are only making minimum wage here in our state. The, the increase of anxiety that you will experience just to pay your bills. It only takes a basic understanding of economics to see the problem here. At the same time the price of rent has shot through the roof, Utility bills have also gone up, and I'm hearing from my constituents all across my district the impact of those high utility costs. Just yesterday, I talked with a constituent on the phone about the rising costs and the, the fight and the struggle with the utility companies. Recent estimates have the average utility costs in Indiana, electricity, gas, cable, internet, water, at approximately $374 per month. Let me say that again, $374 on top of you paying your uh, rent or your mortgage, on top of all the other grocery bills, all of the other things that Hoosiers just need to get by. The stark reality is that Hoosiers do not have the means to afford these extreme bills that they're currently being hit with. As of June, Hoosier rate holders reportedly held a total of $46 million in debt to Indiana's utility companies. So they're getting their money, they're taking care, we're taking care of them, but where's the relief for everyday Hoosiers? Our residents are collapsing under the financial burden of rising rent and utility costs. Across the state, Hoosiers are experiencing energy disconnections all over the place. 12.7% for AES, 9.2% for INM, 3.1% for Duke, 2.6% for NIPSCO, and 3.2% for Centerpoint. Something that is essential year-round, but especially essential during the summer and winter months. And they're being driven from their homes. In 2021, one in 17 renters, that's 5.8%, experienced an eviction filing with black renters and other groups being disproportionately impacted. 
the Hoosier Housing Needs Coalition has found that there is 419,000 unit gap in rental homes available for households that earn less than $50,000 annually for units renting below 1,200 bucks per month. A lack of affordable and available homes either to rent or buy is directly contributing to the homelessness problem that we have here in our state. It's clear that the prosperity of Indiana's economy is not being felt by everyone. I know that because I'm talking to the, my constituents and others who call the office across the state. Everyday working Hoosiers and families are struggling just for the basic, most fundamental things here. There is an affordability crisis in Indiana, and our residents need us to step up and to fight for an economy that works for more than just the business class. It's time for Indiana's economy to also work for the people, and the Senate Democrats will also be advocating for tenant rights, ratepayer protections, so that Hoosiers no longer have to have worry about having the, the means, the affordability for the most basic living necessities. And I will simply close by saying this before I turn it over to Senator Hunley, that if folks are feeling this pinch, our friends on the other side have been in power for the past 20 years. And so I think it's time for us to take a holistic look about how we do things here in our state. And with that, I will turn the microphone over to Senator Andrew Hunley, my colleague from the city of Indianapolis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Ford, and thank you, Senator Taylor. Let's talk about childcare here for a moment. All families deserve access to high quality childcare programs, but childcare continues to be an issue across the entire state of Indiana. We have almost 500,000 children under the age of six here in Indiana, but our child care center capacity is only 180,000. That means that statewide, 45% of children also live in a child care desert, and our shortage of providers is ongoing. And according to the expert testimony that we heard during our interim study committee on public health and our land use task force over the past summer, providers and parents and employers are all struggling under this current childcare system. It is not working. We need significant structural change and we've got solutions to help make that happen. We could start with making changes to our licensing requirements for childcare facilities and improving the support and respect that's given to those childcare providers. We also need to guarantee a living wage for our childcare workers. In the state of Indiana, the average salary for a childcare worker, the average hourly wage is $13.12. You can't even afford a two-bedroom apartment in the city of Indianapolis with that wage. We also need to guarantee paid leave, especially for our childcare workers, so that they can ensure that they can take care of themselves and their own children as well. Last session, this state house missed the opportunity to pass a single piece of legislation addressing our childcare infrastructure crisis. And our caucus once again stands ready with legislation to finally address this issue in the 2024 session. We know that the system right now is hurting families and it's driving away providers. And we also know, as Leader Taylor said, that it's contributing to our state's workforce issues. Thousands of parents are choosing to either work part-time or not at all because childcare is out of reach and it's inaccessible, especially high-quality childcare options. 
but the ability to access childcare is essential. So is the ability to be engaged in the workforce and to make a living. And we know that this burden falls hardest on our women and on our constituents of color. But it shouldn't depend on zip code whether or not you can find a high quality, low cost childcare provider. And that's why we have to expand our eligibility criteria for our CCDF funds, that's the child care development funds, to reflect the needs that are faced by Hoosiers. 24% of Hoosiers are above the poverty line, but are considered to be asset limited and to be income restricted, meaning that they don't make enough to be comfortable, but they make too much to qualify for standard government assistance. We've got to fix that. We've heard hours and hours of testimony and discussion around this topic, and the experts have informed us about how we can begin to address this problem. And 2024 is the time for us to get it done. So in tandem with fighting for expanded childcare access and options for our residents, we're gonna be pushing for paid family leave for all Hoosiers. In a state where we have a near total, near total abortion ban, there is no excuse not to have critical programs available to support Hoosier families. If we say we believe in supporting Hoosier families, then let's really do that. And just as parents must be able to access child care to go to work, they also must be able to access days off to care for their babies, to care for their sick children, and to care for their children at home and so on. Our social infrastructure here in the Hoosier State is severely lacking, and the result has overburdened our residents and driven them away from both the workforce and the state. And this doesn't work for residents or our businesses, and we are risking the future of our Hoosier economy. And so for Indiana to truly be a state that works, we need to make sure that we have a child care system and paid family leave program that works for our people. I'm going to turn it back over to Leader Taylor. Thank you, Senator, Senator Hundley. Another issue that uh, we want to emphasize and talk about for Hoosier families is the high cost of hospital care in the state of Indiana. While we still sit on a budget surplus in the state of Indiana, Hoosiers are finding it hard to be able to pay their hospital bills. Several uh, studies have shown that in the state of Indiana, we're in the, we're in the bottom 10% of states or excuse me, in the lower 10% of states in regards to health care in the state of Indiana. And the Health Care Cost Oversight Committee meeting that uh, hospitals were asked to testify upon, we know that there's an inadequate funding for health care services in the state of Indiana. And I worry that this will continue to exacerbate the problem that we have for uh, working Hoosier families. My caucus will be introducing several pieces of legislation to address these glaring issues with health care costs. But I want to uh, talk about a very important issue. Hoosiers shouldn't be forced to live under an extreme and harmful policies without having any way to directly have a say-so in the laws of the, the state that they live in. The voices of our constituents and those who elected us to our roles should not be a scary thing for Hoosier legislators to understand. But I suppose 
because it happened in red states like Kansas and Ohio, some of the reddest states in the country, voting in favor of abortion rights or maybe marijuana, I understand why my colleagues may have some fears about that. Studies have shown that over, over 60% of Hoosiers support access to reproductive rights. And 85% of Hoosiers support cannabis legalization in some form. It would be scary to put that on the ballot. But what does that say about us when we don't want to hear from Hoosiers? See, these conflicting views are views of the heart. In the state's legislature's refusal to allow Everyday Hoosiers to have their voices heard should not be something that we continue to accept in the state of Indiana. So our caucus again has prepared legislation to deal with this issue, allowing Hoosiers to, to compile signatures in order to have valid initiatives in the state of Indiana. Not a novel idea, by the way. 26 other states already have it. We had the same issue when it came to the property tax caps. It was on the ballot. If we want to have a constitutional amendment, it has to be on the ballot. So this is not a novel idea. The fear of a supermajority is that, hey, if we let Hoosiers actually vote on these issues, it might not be the same policy that we believe inside our caucus. So. We know the economy's not working for Hoosiers. We know that Hoosiers' voices are being silenced. And we, as a Senate Democrat caucus, want to make sure that we do something to help working Hoosier families and also hear their voices loud and clear to the state of Indiana. Um, we're open for any questions or... Are you talking about social emotional learning or about social, literacy? Social emotional literacy. 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 The, the literacy. Can't read. Correct. Or test proficiently in third grade. Yeah. Don't automatically get promoted. At least some of those exemptions are reduced. So, so the question there is about the possibility of legislation that would create additional literacy restrictions, especially for our third graders. Here's what we know, and this is me speaking as not just a senator, but as a person who has 20 years of experience serving in public education here in Indiana, is that we just passed new legislation last year around the science of reading. And we need to make sure that schools have the opportunity to train their teachers to implement these strategies across the board before we start throwing new legislative hurdles in, in the way. We know that Hoosier literacy proficiency is not where we want it to be. Our kids are not reading at the rate that they should be. We also know that we have put new recommendations in place. We have to give them time to work before we start, say, failing all children or retaining a whole class of children. And so I really um, implore us to allow our legislation time to work. Can you tell us a bit more about the challenges, the problems with retaining students, what challenges that 
it can be a challenge to categorically decide to retain a group of children. Um, it is really important that we can take this on an individual basis. Uh, there, there's research and if, you know, out there across the board. Anybody who has an opinion could find research to support it. But what we know is that for, for children who already have limited access to resources, who are already from underserved and upper, underrepresented communities, the stigma of retention can actually increase the likelihood that they drop out. So even if you're retained in third grade, that can have significant impact on where you are as a sixth grader, on where you are as a 12th grader. Um, so we really have to think long and hard about the unintended consequences. We also know that those unintended consequences have a significant impact on children who might have an undiagnosed special education status, right? Whether that's a reading disability or some other type of learning disability. I mean, so we just have to make sure that we have all of the safety nets in place. So we've exhausted every single resource to support children and look at retention as a last resort and not a first resort. Related to, uh, to that, there's also been talk of trying to do something to address the chronic absenteeism in schools. Is there a risk here that we could potentially end up aggravating the school to prison population? How do we address that without uh, ending up excessively penalizing students for their families' criminals? So the, the question is about chronic absenteeism, and here's what we know is that students who are absent from school 10 or more days a school year have significantly significantly reduced academic outcomes. We also know that these are students who need additional social safety nets under them, whether it's because they didn't have enough food at home, whether it's because they have a parent who is working third shift and is at home in the morning to help get them ready for school. Maybe it's that they don't have transportation, right? We have to make sure, again, that we are addressing all of the underlying issues for chronic absenteeism, mental health issues, bullying, all of these things. Um, but we also know that we need to, before we make legislation, because this was brought up in an interim study committee this summer, and then there was this jump to, well, what can we do to solve it at the state level? We need to ask the schools, ask the districts, ask our superintendents what they're already doing. Because many districts around the state have creative and innovative approaches that they're already doing. Um, I know that at my own children's school that we get text messages every time that our child is absent, and I get text messages about all of these talking points about how absenteeism impacts children, um, so that we know that information. There are districts out there that are doing great things to address this. I'm not sure that there's a legislative fix. I think that there is a fix um, that we need to lean on our education experts and ask them for support. What are your thoughts on these proposals coming after there was no better committee on education this year? Thoughts about that? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of interesting that we did so much to address education funding last year, and then we left a lot of these issues off the summer study committee calendar. Um, I find it very disturbing that we're going to come up with these quote-unquote ideas to address our education issues in the state of Indiana without having some kind of understanding, first of all, how the changes that we've made are going to be implemented in their impact, but then to come up with some ideas about retention at the third grade or uh, some kind of uh, addressing chronic absenteeism without having some kind of study, we just don't do that in the state of Indiana, and we shouldn't be doing it now. Yeah, that, that was a missed opportunity as far as I'm concerned. We should have had the Education Interim Study Committee. We could have brought in experts. We could have brought in the stakeholders to this conversation, talked about the facts and figures, but we chose not to do that. We chose to put our head in the sand and bury it, and that's where we are. 
There's always that fear, okay? We know exponentially that all of the changes that we make to the education system have an effect on those who are most vulnerable. And we should be looking out for them rather than the 70,000 students that are now in the voucher program in the state of Indiana, which has just become the largest school district two times in the state of Indiana. The next size below that is IPS with some 32,000 students. The voucher system now has a 70,000 student population. The Republican You know, it's kind of interesting to me when the Indiana G General Assembly thinks we need to spend our time addressing foreign relation issues. Um, we've got some domestic relations issues in the state of Indiana. And if we spend taxpayer dollars addressing foreign relation issues in the state house of Indiana, then we should be ashamed of that. And we're going to be keeping track. I'm telling you, the state, the, the Senate Democrat caucus is going to be keeping track on how much time we send on, spend on these social issues rather than addressing the direct effect of our legislation on working Hoosier families. They say they need to protect Jewish students in We need to protect all students on all campus from any act of hatred. It's not just Jewish students. There are Muslim students who suffer on campus. There's black students who suffer on campus, LGBTQ. If we want to pick out a group of people to support, that's not the way we do things in the state of Indiana. We should be up wanting to protect everyone. You mentioned yesterday at the chamber preview that um, your caucus is in a defensive posture when it comes to social How do you approach if social issues do come up? You know, it's kind of interesting that you, you talk about how does our caucus approach these social issues. We do it like we've, we've always been doing it, and we've, act, we've actually been successful. Not one piece of social legislation has passed with the entire Republican caucus supporting it. But those who voted against are now becoming more and more vocal inside the Republican caucus. And I think, uh, with all due respect to my uh, colleague on the other side of the aisle, leader, President Pro Tem Bray, is going to have some problems keeping these social issues at bay. And, you know, for me, it's just going to be working across the aisle like we've done before. Um, you, the, you know, the, the near total abortion ban, it didn't pass overwhelmingly in the Senate. And remember, it was a close vote. And if they continue down that path, I think they're going to find out the hard way that election people, uh, legislation has consequences in the elections coming up. I want to um, talk about ballot initiatives, though, so that everyone understands what we are talking about and so that Hoosiers understand what this means. That means, like in other states, that there will be a threshold for an individual Hoosier taxpayer to go and, and get their fellow Hoosiers to acquire enough signatures to get a ballot initiative on the, uh, the agenda for the next coming election. Why is that a problem in the state of Indiana? Why is it that we legislate from down here in Indianapolis and people who live in Grant County or White County or Pike County who can't get down here to lobby legislation can't have their voices heard? 
if you vote for a Democrat or a Republican, there's a lot of independence in the state of Indiana. What about those people who don't have a party affiliation? Where are their voices? And for me, I'm still struggling with understanding why my colleagues don't want to hear from Hoosiers in the state of Indiana. I think there's a lot of people in the state of Indiana that if they, if you thought about it, they want to protect women's right to abortion. They want to have some kind of uh, a reasonable marijuana law in the state of Indiana. But because the Indiana General Assembly refuses to hear from them, their voices are muted. Well, what does that mean to us as the state of Indiana? If I'm a business leader, I can come down here and get legislation passed that doesn't give women uh, access to, uh, uh, the, you know, access in the workplace when they're breastfeeding. We, they can come down here and block legislation like that. But, but we can't get a discussion, a vote on the floor in regards to reasonable marijuana legislation. That's not right. Can I, can yeah. I also just take that a step further? You know, the reason why we're pushing for this, obviously because it's been in the news lately, but more importantly because, and this isn't the time necessarily to talk about this, but we have gone through the redistricting process and our districts are severely gerrymandered. And so a lot of my colleagues don't have to call folks back, don't have to email them back. They simply just have to put their name on the ballot and they'll get 75% of the vote, right? But as Senator Taylor was talking about, people in rural Indiana, people in urban Indiana, you know, all over the place, this is their opportunity to have their voice heard to have their vote count in these elections. And so, yeah, so yes, it's fun to talk about it because it's been the national news, but fundamentally it's democracy. You know, it's democracy here in our state. Let the people have a say in what they want to see the policy coming out of this building. I think if you have to say, a quick question. When it comes to elections in Indiana, the governor's picked the primary, the lieutenant governor's picked the convention. You could have a situation where the governor's in one mindset, the lieutenant governor's in another mindset. Is it time to change that here in Indiana? <laughs> Since we're talking about you know, openness and transparency. Well, uh, I think elections should be the primary way for a person to represent people, including judges, by the way, in Marion County um, or Lake County or Allen County, but I won't get into that. The point is that Hoosiers should have a say in who represents them, and conventions block Hoosiers from being able to do that. So I've always been one of those people that believe elections are important. On the ballot initiative, how do you accomplish that? Does that require amending the state constitution to give people a voice? No, it does not. It does not require amending the constitution. What you can do is just pass a piece of legislation. Other states have the law that says a certain percentage of signatures allow the initiative to be on the ballot in the upcoming election. And so you just, a certain percentage of the number of people who voted in the, for example, Secretary of State's election, some down the ballot election so you don't get kind of a, a skewed amount of, of signatures, a certain percentage, and then that would allow the question to be on the ballot. So it does not require a constitutional amendment. No. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was ready for your question this year. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.